Father, we thank you for that love, and we celebrate that love. Help us to know and experience that love this morning. Holy Spirit, we trust that your presence is and will continue to be amongst us, and you'll continue to speak to us about your incredible love. May each one of us leave today knowing that we've had an encounter with the Creator God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Kids, thank you for worshiping with us. Man, this morning we got a few things to celebrate. Thank you for everybody who was involved in making Easter awesome. Last week was so fun. You know, we had the biggest Easter attendance that we've had in six years. That is incredible. We we had two baptisms, and I just love that God is continuing to allow us to be a movement of hope in this community that can't be ignored. This is what we pray for. This is what we ask God, that we would be a movement of hope that can't be ignored. And we are that when we're out in our community showing God's love to people. So, man, Easter, what an incredible Sunday. Thank you for everybody that was involved. Hey, this week we begin our new series that we are calling, um, I Want to Believe But. I Want to Believe But. And the truth is we all have had and we all have uh, excuses or these these uh, God concepts that are not fully true. I want to believe, but fill in the blank. And there's lots of them. But during this series, we're going to uh, look at four of those. I want to believe, but. I want to believe, but. You know, I think typically when we um, say I want to believe and then we put a, a but there, what we are doing is we are um, choosing to not believe in God, oftentimes because of, of wrong God conceptions. See, we have these wrong ideas about who God is and who he should be. And when he doesn't measure up to those, we go, I can't believe. For example, next week we're going to be talking about the God that we often think that, that God is a, is a rules God. He's all about the rules. And, and we say, um, a killjoy God. We're going to talk about the killjoy God. He just wants to kill all our joy. He doesn't want us to have fun. The killjoy God. We're going to talk about that next week. And then a few weeks after that, we're going to talk about angry God. Sometimes we don't want to believe in God or sometimes people don't want to believe in God because they believe that God is an angry God. And so everything he does is about anger, and really that message is about judgment, and it is about hell. And oftentimes people say, I can't believe in a God that would send people to hell. Uh, let me ask this question and see if you can uh, um, track with me. You, you remember uh, years ago, maybe those of you that are under 40, you might not quite get this. But you remember the TV guide? Remember we used to get the TV guide? Well, the TV guide was all about, you had to look in it to find out what time your show was playing. And so if you wanted to watch, say, Dukes of Hazard, okay, you had to look in the TV guide, or if you didn't get the TV guide to your house, you looked at the newspaper, and you would find out that it was on at 8 o'clock on Friday night. And at 8 o'clock on Friday night, if you wanted to watch the Dukes of Hazard, you had to be in front of your TV on the couch, Right? And if you missed it, you missed it. And you had to watch all the commercials. And if you wanted to change the channel, you had to get up out of your chair and go and change the channel. Or if you wanted to turn the volume up, you had to get up out of your chair and you had to go turn the volume up. How many remember those days? Man, things have changed. 
Today, when I want to go watch Dukes of Hazard reruns, I just go on it. I sit on my couch. At first, I yell at my kids to find the remote. Where's the remote? Just I get in here, find the remote. And usually, it's under the couch or somewhere that I actually put it. Sometimes, I hide it from the kids so they can't use it, but then I like to blame them. Guys, give me the remote. So they bring me the remote, and I sit on the couch. And I can sit on the couch for hours and watch Dukes of Hazard over and over and over again. And no commercials. And if there is commercials, we can fast forward the commercials. Back, back in the day, we, we didn't have that. Or how about like if I was to go on a journey, this happened to my family, my wife and I, just a few weeks ago, we were going to Moab for spring break to to Utah to do some mountain biking and hiking and stuff like that. And it wasn't until like two hours into the trip that we thought we should pull up a map and find out where Moab is. I knew that it was west and that we would have to go west on I-70. And so it used to be back in the day, what you had to do is before the trip, you had to get a a map or an atlas or you would stop every 10 miles and you would ask at the gas station, right? Am I still going in the right direction? Well, two hours into it, we pull up Google. We say, hey, Google, where's Moab? And it gets us right there. Or how about Amazon? If you want something, I just heard Amazon is introducing next day. Uh, free for Amazon Prime subscribers. And so if I want whatever it is, that yesterday, <laughs> because yesterday, I, I, I'm going to confess, I got really mad. I was really mad yesterday morning, early, like 5.30. Everybody was sleeping. I couldn't find scissors in my house. I couldn't find them. And so uh, I just got mad. I said, this will get, I, like, like it was somebody else's, like it's my wife's fault for some reason, right? It was my, I probably have them from when I needed them the week before. And so I said, this will get her. I went on Amazon and I uh, uh, got uh, two, uh, four sets of scissors. I bought them. It was like seven bucks. I bought them, and they're going to be delivered tonight. <laughs> four sets of scissors. I couldn't wait. I, I was so upset. But you know, this whole idea of on demand, this this idea that, that we are the generation of on demand. We we don't have to wait anymore. We can get it now. Get it right now. Uh, when we bring that together with our selfish nature as humans, we, we just are selfish. We are. Think about your life and, and, and how you live. We are just inherently selfish, and it's something that we have to fight against. When we bring together this on-demand generation and the selfishness that is human nature, oftentimes we, we put this lens on that we think that God ought to be on-demand also. When we pray, when we ask for something, then God ought to respond the way we want him to when we want him to. And I will confess, I get like that sometimes, so that, that I get in this idea that, that God is there for me and for my purposes and for my happiness. And when I pray and I don't get what I want right now, when I want it, I turn into a little two-year-old, throw it a fed in the toy store. Because I want. Well, today we're going to talk about the perception of the on-demand God. Uh, what about when, when uh, uh, things that we pray about are really I- important? What about when, like in high school, I prayed and I wanted God to give me something. And I, you know, I don't think this was a selfish prayer. And in fact, I've always been taught that if I'm praying God's will, that he's going to do it. I've been taught that if there was, you know, nothing in between me and God and, and there was no unforgiven sins, for example, that, that God would move. If I prayed according to his will and I had faith that he would respond. Well, when I was in high school, my aunt and uncle, they were going through a divorce. And the, this aunt and uncle were to me like a second family, mom and dad. My, cousin, my cousins were my best friends. 
And I just made it my mission when I was 17 years old. I was going to pray every day that God would save this marriage. And I prayed and I prayed. And the Bible tells us that, that God hates divorce. And so I know that it was not God's will that they got divorced. And so I prayed fervently every day. I even fasted second breakfast one time. They still got divorced. They still got divorced. Or what about when you pray for somebody, a loved one that is sick, a loved one that is uh, perhaps that is, is dying? You pray fervently, you pray, and, and, and God doesn't seem to respond. Well, through the scripture, we see that, that God is not an on demand God. In fact, in the life of David, King David in the Old Testament, one of the Old Testament greats. He prayed and he fasted fervently that his young newborn son wouldn't die when he was sick. And his young son died. What about Job when, when all the sickness and, and Job lost his family, lost everything he owned? And he prayed. And in Job chapter 30, he says, God, I pray and you don't hear me. God, I pray and you don't respond. Job was a good man. Job was a righteous man. David was, was a man that, that the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. And yet his prayers didn't get answered in the way that he sh- thought that they should get prayed. Or even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, one of the greats who wrote most of the New Testament. He prayed, Scripture says, he's speaking in Scripture, he says, I prayed that God would remove this from me. And whatever this was, some kind of ailment, maybe depression, some say it was some kind of eye problem. But he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed, and God said, no. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Even good people in the scripture, they pray fervently, and God didn't respond. Well, at least he didn't respond the way that they thought. Today we're going to look at Psalms 88. Uh, Open your Bibles. Psalms 88, right in the middle. Let me give a little background about Psalms. The Psalms were written for worship in the Old Testament times. The Hebrew people would go to a synagogue and they would open the Psalm books and they would sing these songs together. Some of them were more like poems, but this really was their hymn book. Remember, we used to have hymn books in churches? So this was the, the hymn book of, of you know, 2,000 years ago. And, and still in synagogues, they use these, they sing these as, as, as hymns in some places. A lot of the psalms are, are happy, and, and they're full of joy, and it's worship, and, it, and it's celebration, and it's thanking God for good things. But you know what? I read this week. I didn't count myself, but I, I read a commentary that said there are more songs of lament than there are songs of joy. Songs of lament are songs that go, oh, God, why, why, why? This is not good. This is not fun. Why are you doing this? But all those songs of lament, all those, except the one we're going to look at today, all of them end on a happy note. They all say, but God, we trust you're going to do something awesome. And in your time, you're going to get me out of this. And in your good timing, you're going to heal heal me. But Psalm 88 does not end like that. As we're going to see today, Psalm 88 was written by somebody who uh, was a worship leader. He was one of the worship leaders in the temple. And you would think that this guy is a guy that had it all together, right? This guy was like a staff member at a church, on staff, the the paid worship guy. He would choose the songs. He would make sure everything was ready, and he would choose the readings. And he's going to just, he writes this this psalm that's like, God, where are you? God, why don't you answer my prayer? 
God, why can't you be the God that I want you to be in this moment? God, why can't you be the on-demand God that I so want? So let's read in Psalm 88. Verse 1, 2. We're not going to read the entire psalm, but I'm just going to pick out a few pieces here. Psalm 88, verse 1 and 2. He says, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. And so we see he starts out at a very desperate state. I heard a commentator say, say this week, he said that uh, there really is no prayer except those prayers that come when we're in a desperate state. Otherwise, our prayers are like, dear God, thank you for this food. Bless to our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> God, thank you for this day. Help it to be an awesome day. Keep my kids safe, whatever. Help them to sleep tonight. Amen. But isn't it those, play, those times that we're, we're desperate, where, where we are just crying out and our heart is hurting, isn't, isn't that the, the real kind, kind of prayer? And that's the kind of prayer that he's praying here. In fact, as we read on, it, it looks like he's sick somehow. It looks like maybe he's dying. Some commentators say that it is perhaps that he has leprosy or some sort of skin disease. Because as we're going to see, he, he is shunned from the community. And he's lonely. Uh, let's read on in verse 3 and 4. He says, For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. See, what he's saying here in our words, the way we would say it, without explaining too much, getting into it too much, this word Sheol, is, is, is a lot like what we say, hell. Uh, not, not such a, a deep, dark place, because sometimes Sheol in the Old Testament could just mean the grave. Whereas when we say hell, we mean an eternal place of fire. Sometimes Sheol in the Old Testament, it meant, I said I wasn't going to explain it too much, and here I go. Sometimes Sheol in the Old Testament was a place of, of eternal separation from God. It was a place of punishment. And so what he's saying here is he's like, God, I am going through hell. This is hell. You don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you have been there? <laughs> whether it's chronic pain, whether it's sickness, whether it's loved one, whether it's some kind of depression, we've been there. God, this is hell. And we desperately pray and ask God to move and do something. When you're in a dark place like that, the place that we ought to go is to God. We go to God with our darkness. Because you know what? Our God, he's not afraid of the dark. He will go there with us. Just like this guy in Psalm 88. He's bringing God, in a sense, into the darkness with him. And he's confessing, I don't know what's going on. Why are you doing this? This is hell. We, even when I don't get my way, as we're going to see in this passage, even when this guy doesn't get his way, God is still God. And God still has a plan, even when I don't see it. Verse 6 and 7. You have put me in the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Uh, as we look at this and we read this, who does he think is doing this to him? He thinks God is doing this to him. God is putting him in this place. This is what he believes, at least. 
And there's a tension here. Because how could a good God allow him to go through this tough time? You see, the tension is that we, we, we believe that God is a good God. And he has a good plan, yet we don't feel it because this, this hurts. This pain, it hurts. Is God doing this or is God allowing this? Of course, we believe in a sovereign God. What a sovereign God means, when we say sovereign God, we mean that God is in control. And because he is in control with everything, some would say that he, he takes control over everything. And some who are of the theological bend that he's a determinist, it means that he is actually doing everything that happens. He, he is doing it. I don't know if I would go that far. This guy seems to. He doesn't say God is allowing this. He says God is, God is doing this. There's a tension. I just want to bring up this tension. It's this tension that I don't know that we can solve. Is God doing this to him? Or is God allowing this? In Psalm chapter 103, we read about the sovereignty of God. Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Meaning what he wants to happen, when he wants to happen, it can and it will. I think it also brings up the question, does God do evil? Does God do evil? Well, I would say no. It's not in his nature to be able to do evil. I think sometimes our perception is what is happening is an absolutely evil thing. It's our perception. God doesn't do evil. Again, it's a tension that we have to wrestle with. Even when we don't get our way, even when we can't see, is he still God? Verse 8, he says, You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. There he is, just incredibly lonely. He's lonely. It's like, my friends, they won't even come around. I'm in this all by myself. God, you're not here. You have made my friends leave me. What is going on? He's pouring out his soul. As we see here, he kind of turns the corner. And he begins to, in a sense, barter with God and complain. He barters with God as if God needs something from him. Like, God, if you will do this, then, then uh, things will be better for you, God. <laughs> Ever think you know better than God? Yeah, here in verse 10 and 12, he says, um, Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up and praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon, which is a, a place of um, desolation? Are, are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Again, what is going on here is he's bargaining, bargaining with God. He says, God, if I die here, then there's going to be less of people to praise you. In the grave, I can't really give you glory because I'm gone. There's a lot you're going to need from me in the future, God, so you, you better make it so that I don't die because you're going to need me. Well, if God needs us, then God is not God. For those of you that are parents, you, you ever had kids try to bargain with you? Yeah, Dad, I will clean my room if you take me to ice cream. <laughs> or, Dad, uh, um, I will clean my room... If you, you know, pay me or, or, or whatever, fill in the blank, like as if I needed something from my kids. 
I think we get in that trap oftentimes of, of bartering with, with God. And we also get in the trap of thinking that there's formulas. I think that even in the, our Christian culture, we're kind of addicted to formulas. Like if I pray in this certain way, at this certain time of day, you know, in this certain position, or in this certain order, if I pray that way, then God has to respond like this formula. Even when God doesn't respond, when we get the formulas right, is he still God? Even when I don't get my way, is he still God? In verse 14, he says, why do you hide your face from me? I read this great book a few years ago by Philip Yancey, uh, an author. He's actually a local guy. Yeah, great stuff. The book was called um, Searching for the Invisible God. And a few of the premises of the book I want to share. Uh, one of the premises is, is that, that it is this invisible God. And for us to believe an invisible God, it does take faith. Hebrews eleven six tells us that without faith, without faith, it is impossible to please God. How many know that any, any kind of faith always takes risk? When we're searching for a God that's invisible, that oftentimes isn't tangible, that there's no litmus test to tell. Like we can't touch him and taste him and we just, we don't, we don't feel him. It takes faith and it takes risk to keep hanging on and to keep believing that he's there and he's good and he has a good plan. Well, it seems like in this book, he talks about how it often seems like and and he would say it seems that as we get more mature and this goes counterintuitive, I think, to what we've been taught, and I think what we've learned to understand in the church. As we grow in maturity, this is what Nancy would say, as we grow in maturity, and in a sense, as we grow closer to God, he becomes more elusive. And he shows about the Christian giants, the giants of the faith over the years. How as they grew more mature and more deeply in their faith, it's not that God spoke to them more and they could hear God's voice more clearly, but it was that God seemed more distant and he hid himself more. And so there was this sense that they would have to draw on a deeper faith, the invisible God. Let me give a few examples. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a preacher from the 1800s in England. And he prayed, and he prayed that God would take away this, he, this depression that he struggled with. He got so deep at one time that he quoted Job in a, in a, in a prayer. And, and, and the prayer was that he wanted God to just take his life. God, just take my life. Just take it. Because he was so deep in this depression, and God seemed so far away and invisible to him. We all know Mother Teresa. Well, once she passed away, she, her journals were published and some of her conversations with spiritual mentors. Now, can you think of anybody in the last hundred years that was more close to God than Mother Teresa? Right? If we wanted to list some people that we thought were close to God and knew God and his voice, we would, we would say Mother Teresa. Well, let me read a few excer- excerpts out of her journal. Where is my faith? Even deep down, right in, there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. I have no faith. So many unanswered questions live within me. I am afraid to uncover them because of blasphemy. If there be a God, please forgive me. 
She's talking about this internal pain that she, she has, probably some, some kind of depression, and that she, she has prayed that God would lift this, and he, and he didn't. And as she grew older and more mature, it seemed that God was more elusive. Martin Luther, who lived 500 years ago, was a great preacher and author. In fact, we draw on so much of his theology and his teachings and how we do church in the Protestant tradition. He wrote this. He said, for more than a week, Christ was wholly lost. I was shaken by desperation and blasphemy against God. What he means by blasphemy is there was this period in his life where he was saying, there is no God. There just is no God. Here is one of the great theologians. There is no God. And God becomes more elusive. We're not alone in our doubts. And even when we can't see it, even when God doesn't give us what we want, he's still there and he's still God. Notice in verse 11, the psalmist says, you dread, um, your dreadful assaults, destroy me. Again, who is doing this? <laughs> he thinks God is doing this. Your dreadful assaults are destroying me. Uh, that's a pretty low place. Check this out. In, in verse 1, when he begins, he makes this, this uh, assertion. He, he, he calls God the God of his salvation. <laughs> He cries out to the God of his salvation. He's affirming that there is something good that God has done for him. I, I don't know their conception, really, of salvation in the Old Testament. When we come to the New Testament, we say it's salvation, that we get to be a part of his kingdom, and, and it saves us from our sins, and it saves us from eternal separation, which is hell. In the Old Testament, they, they, I don't fully understand what they meant by salvation, but save them from something. He, he said, God, you're the one who, who saves me. And then he goes on to talk about how God is destroying him. And then in verse 11, he affirms the steadfast love of God. He says, he says something about the steadfast love of God. In verse, as we go on in verse 12, he talks about the righteousness of God. He talks about this, this righteous God that is, that is assaulting him. This God of steadfast love keeps sending these, these waves to destroy him. And there's this tension that he brings out that, Seems God is a good God. But he never cries out there is no God because, because he's not getting his way, because it's not a God of demand. I want to point out two problems in our human hearts, in our human nature. When we see that the God is an invisible God, and when he seems distant from us, and when he's not the God of of being on demand, when we realize that oftentimes what we do is we create God in our own image. So when we can't see God clearly, or he's not what we want him to be, then we begin to create him in our own image. I don't like the idea of hell, so there must not be hell. I don't like the idea that a God wouldn't respond in my prayer of desperation. And so when I pray and God doesn't respond, there must be no God. And we start to make him like us. And when he's not like us, we reject him. And we've created a God that's in our own image. 
And when he doesn't match, we say there is no God. I think it's hard to grasp the idea that he knows all. He knows and he sees all. Uh, Tim Keller, who's an author and writes a book about prayer, he has this, this is this incredible quote. He says, God gives us what we would have asked for had we known what he knows. That makes sense. God gives us what we would have asked for had we known what he knows. That's very comforting. A little side note here, let me point out, it's so important. It's so important that our God concept, what we think about God doesn't come from ourself. What we think about God doesn't come from our feelings. What we think about God doesn't come from what our culture says or what other religions say. What we think about God has to come from how he's revealed himself in the scriptures, in his word. Our God concept has to come from here, otherwise it, it will destroy us. It, it destroys us. So when when we are um, looking to an invisible God, we typically um, try to paint Him into our image, make Him into us. Another problem is we think that He exists to serve us. We often think God exists to serve us. Many many of you parents can can you, you understand this illustration. When your kids think you exist to serve them. <laughs> and what kind of kid? When we respond and we're like, okay, I serve my kids. What kind of kids do we raise? Spoiled little brats that can't get along in society. <laughs> Spoiled little, little brats that, that spend their, their lives in prison. Spoiled little brats that, that can't submit to any kind of authority. Well, you know what? I don't exist to serve my kids. God does not exist to serve us. God does not exist to be our God on demand. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We exist to serve God and his purpose. I was reminded this week, um, I've seen this, I've heard this, I've read this, I've experienced this. In the affluent cultures, like in North America, in affluent cultures like in Denver, Colorado, when we are having struggles and hard times, we tend to pray like this. God, remove these struggles. God, get me out of these hard times. God, take this trial from me. We, we pray like that. Well, in countries where they're not so affluent, and in countries where they are uh, everyday you know, existence, in countries where times are really hard, in countries like in Sri Lanka, where many were scared to death to show up at church this morning, they tend to pray like this. They say, God, we pray that you would give us stronger backs to endure these trials. Because they have this God concept that, that even in their struggles, even in their trials, God is serving his purpose in the world. And there's this great article that I saw this week by John Piper. He, he was diagnosed with cancer and had to go through some chemo and some surgeries. And the article is called, um, oh, man, I just lost it. The article is, um, um, don't waste your cancer. <laughs> don't waste your cancer. Let it point you, let it point others to God. 
Let it somehow advance God's kingdom in your life. Let God do his work through your cancer. Don't waste your cancer. That sounds crazy. What would it look like for us to get um, in the habit of praying, not God make my life easier, but God make me stronger so that I can be involved in whatever you're doing in the world. I can't see what you're doing in this, but you're doing something. Make my back stronger to endure this because I want to be a part of what you're doing. His purpose is a restoration of the world back to its original design. He has a purpose. There is a sense that he's bringing us back to the garden like it was in the garden, but this time it's a city. It's not a garden. When we look at Revelation, a city comes out of the sky, the, the new Jerusalem, and there's a sense that it crashes into earth. And Jesus is the king, and no more is there a temple because God's presence is amongst us, and the church is all there. Scripture tells us that he is creating all things new. This is his purpose. And we get to be a part, even in our sickness, even in our trials, even in our pain. There is something that God is doing to redeem the world. And I know that in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our pain, that is, that is hard to hear. Even when we don't get our way, is God still God? Um, there's a few practical reasons that I want, I want to cover here because I, I think they're important. Um, the question of why doesn't God answer my prayer? Why isn't God my on-demand God? The, the Bible does give some practical reasons of why God doesn't always answer or hear our prayer. I, I overlooked this before, but I saw on the Proverbs this week that there's a Proverbs that says that if we ignore the cries of the poor, then when hard times come for us, our cries will be ignored. The New Testament talks about how if we don't forgive others, God won't forgive us. If there's unconfessed sin in rebellion between God and I, He doesn't respond and He doesn't hear our prayers. In 1 Peter chapter 3, this one's for, for you guys, for us guys. Peter tells us that if we're not honoring our wives, if we're not loving our wives well, that our prayers are hindered. Guys, if you're not honoring and loving your wives well, man, I was at a group of a bunch of church planters, and the preacher was up there preaching, and he said, pastors, I know you guys pray for your church every day that God would provide and the church would grow. And you know what? Maybe God is not moving and providing because of the way you're abandoning your wife to make this church plant happen. Ooh, ouch. Ouch. Fellas, maybe God's not answering your prayers because of the way you're treating your wife. Even when we don't get our way, and he's not the God that we demand, he is still God. He is still God. If we look at the end of Psalms 88, we see that it just ends in darkness. Darkness. So it doesn't turn the corner like in other Psalms. It turns the corner and it says, ah, oh, but good things are coming. No, he, he ends it just darkness. I think that we want to, we want God to speak to us his love in the way that we can 
that we want, right? We, we, we want God to love us the way we want him to love us. Like, God, I will know you love me if you answer every time I pray. God, I know you will love me if you give me everything I want. God, I know you will love me if you heal me. But again, God is not the God that is on demand. It is not our purposes. But there is a way that we know that God loves us, that we know that we can know, that we know that we know. And we celebrated it last week. The way that we know God loves us is not by the gifts that he gives us here on earth. That's not how we know he loves us. We know he loves us because of the fact, verifiably, history's most attested to ancient event, the most attested to event in ancient history, the cross and the resurrection. And we know that God loves us because he was willing to come and to die on the cross and endure the cross for, for us. To be a bridge between us and God the Father. This is how we know that God loves us, that he sent his son to die for us. Again, it's not all these other gifts that we think that we want and need. But we know God loves us.